some repeat visitors. Thanks for coming back for the last of 2014 <laughs> from the Post Alliance. Um, most of you have heard my spiel already, but I'm with Technicolor Postworks, and we are a founding member of the Post Alliance, um, and also a full-service post-production facility. We have a few different locations, all in downtown Manhattan, and um, everything from uh, dailies to offline edit rooms, uh, all the way through final color correction, conform, and uh, sound mix. Um, and work on projects ranging from commercials to independent feature, scripted features and documentaries, studio projects, scripted television shows. Um, we don't discriminate. <laughs> so um, with that, thanks again for coming, and I'm going to hand you guys over to Ben Baker. Thank you, Haley. Uh, as Haley mentioned, this is the last seminar for the year in uh, 2014 and the last of the turnover series. Uh, some housekeeping first, uh, at PostNY is our Twitter account, so feel free to tweet about us during the show even, take photos. Uh, PostNewYork.org is the website, and if you're not a member at the moment, you can certainly jump on there and uh, sign up and become a member even by the end of this talk. So we've covered uh, Turnover to Sound with Ian Bloom and Alexa Zimmerman. I see Ian's uh, enjoying his spot in the audience this time. Um, we also had Turnover to Picture with Ian again and Mash Matthew Snyder from Technicolor. This is Turnover to Visual Effects. Um, I've got uh, Zena Buka, who joined the Editors Guild as an apprentice on A Serious Man. She's gone on to work on films including Black Swan and Men in Black 3. Zana started in visual effects editorial as a visual effects assistant on The Bourne Legacy and Noah, and most recently she was visual effects editor on Chris Rock's upcoming Top 5. And Chris Healer, who's the CEO, CTO, visual effects supervisor, visual effects consultant, creative designer, software developer, producer, and scientist of The Molecule, his visual effects company here in New York. Um, he's worked on a lot of uh, things, The Affair, Nurse Jackie, Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. The Americans, 30 Rock, uh, A Walk Among the Tombstones, The Giver, a lot of shows. Um, Chris uh, runs The Molecule uh, here in New York. So we're going to um, start off, we've covered sound and picture, and this is probably more specific than that in the turnover to visual effects. And we'll be looking at the whole visual effects uh, pipeline. But we always start in prep and pre-production. I, I might start with Chris, actually. Can you take us through... I mean, your role as the visual effects supervisor, what, what is the first thing that you're doing? I mean, you'd be on before the visual effects editor um, would be on. So what is the first meeting, the first phone call? How do you start a job? Uh, well, usually we, well, in the ideal world, we'll talk about the ideal yeah, world. Yeah, the ideal world. The ideal world is uh, we have a script, we would read it, break it down, or the uh, director or producer would have a script breakdown that would show, we think these are visual effects, we hope we can get away without visual effects here, we definitely know these are visual, you know. So we make a list, we talk about each scene, we talk about what's possible, we talk about budget, timing, things like that, and, and there's a discovery process there to figure out, okay, well, your whole movie takes place at night in the rain. How do we want to do that? Does that mean we have to shoot the whole thing at night in the rain? Do we have to wait for the rain? Are we using rain towers? Or are we going to add rain? Are you going to do it in a studio? So we, you know, we, we basically try to inject 
uh, or, or let the, the imagination of the script meet the realities of production during that, during that time. And as well, we talk about technical things like, uh, does it make sense to do it in 5K? Are you going to do it in stereo? What's your complete pipeline? What's your ultimate deliverable? Are you doing ultra HD? Do we need any exotic color considerations or camera considerations and things like that? We, we kind of reel it into that place. And you're building a, a blueprint of every shot into previs? Is that at this stage? Like, uh, I would say at this stage we're, we're trying to create an abstraction from anything that you can possibly imagine is possible down to anything within this rough squiggly line of a circle. Everything inside of that is possible. Everything outside we have to figure out, you know, to make other plants. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a matter of narrowing it down to what what we can what can be done and um and it that doesn't necessarily imply that we're actually doing storyboards or breakdown or previs or or anything else other than just making the large decisions about uh you know for instance a production comes in they're like we found the greatest location ever it's this old victorian house and we want to shoot the whole movie there but unfortunately, there's a McDonald's across the street, and that's not part of our movie. So we go, okay, great. Well, you can use this location, but we have to shoot it this way, and we have to, you know, that we, that doesn't require previs. It doesn't require storyboarding, but it says, it, you know, it informs the the reality that we're we're gonna that we're gonna operate under. And there must be a point where, you, are you in? I mean, you're not instructing the cinematographer, but do you give guidelines to the camera crew on how to shoot if, if it was that example for yeah well some of it is uh in a pre-production phase of like okay uh, you're gonna need five 20 by 20 blue screens out in front and hopefully it's not windy and hopefully that you know it's a negotiation bro. it's a negotiation and then you get there on the day and realize oh well you know if we just shoot a little tighter if we use you know if we don't see two windows at once or we don't see, you know, in the example of our Victorian house, which is, I don't know how that became it, but, um, you know, in that example, we say, okay, if we're going to spend most of the day looking out the front windows, then we need to set it up in a way where if, if, if we see out these windows, this blue screen would cover it and we're just never going to see the, out those windows over there, or we only see out those windows at night or, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I don't know. It's, it's fun. I like to use, for whatever reason, Ghostbuster references. But in right, this case, we're going to use Gremlins references, right? Don't feed them after midnight and don't get them wet. It's that kind of thing. You just, we don't ever see the window on the left. That's just not allowed. It's not part of this movie, for instance. Or whatever, we lay out the ground rules and then let the blocking follow from that and the camera positions and, and how the day is going to flow and how the light's going to move and things like that. And, and like on the day, so we're into the shoot now and you're on day 12 and you sh you've got particular shots to get. Are you the... Are you a traffic cop? Are you going around saying, no, no, wait, 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 you know, point the camera over there? You know, is, is, how is that relationship calibrated? Because, I mean, the, the production crew, you might not meet anyone until day 12, right? Yeah, it's entirely possible. And, and I think, uh, you know, obviously it's important to, it's, it's, I find being on set as a supervisor is as much technical as it is political. So, you want to position yourself in a way where you're not the guy running around saying, no, 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 you can't do that. You want to say, yeah, we can do that, but let's just make this one tiny change. 
And so it's kind of, it's, you know, you'll win more friends coming from that place of optimism and, and problem solving. And another trick is that, you know, I mean, I don't even think I've been on a show that shoots at a, you know, a shooting ratio of like two to one or three to one is like, that's crazy. Most shows are 10, 15, 20, 30 to one. So there's an element of picking your battle there, you know, and right, yeah. if you do 10 takes of something and three of them have a bad blue screen, but the other seven are okay, then it's like, mm, okay, we'll let that one go. We'll figure it out in post. Yeah. So during this shoot process, Sonny, you've come on then. When are you starting? Are you starting on the first day of... Um, it depends on the scale of the show. Um, on a larger show, you'll start pretty much when they start shooting. Um, on a smaller show, like on the Chris Rock movie, I started about two months before they went to the DI. Just because oh, really? it was a that much light. smaller show and not the most organized kind of adventure. Um, and are you in this conversation about... I mean, not about how it's being shot, but are you being involved in this kind of pre-visualization, pre-production? Not really. Um, I'll get previs and things like that, but I don't ever go to set. Or I mean, do you? What do you get from the supervisor to kind of say, okay, well, here's what is there a piece of paperwork that you two exchange? Uh, do, what do you get? Do you just get the dailies. Um, pretty much in my experience, I've just gotten dailies and then previs and kind of. Um, shot lists normally I normally get things from the editor more right, than yes. um, more than from the vendor what are you preparing for the editor Chris do you well the goal and it's not necessarily always achieved but the goal is to communicate this information through uh, through notes from the script supervisor for instance notes through the slate like it's a very subtle piece of information there but if you have Scene 27, camera A, take seven, okay. But then if you find in the, in the, you know, in the ingest process in editorial that you have a shot called V27A, then hopefully that's a little clue that says, hey, th these two shots have something to do with each other. This is the plate and this is the foreground, or, or this is the shot where we like the cat and this is the shot where we like the guy. So those two are going to be married together at, to become a final shot. So... We do our best to communicate that information through, uh, rather than just this giant, giant data dump after it's over, it's better, I think, to kind of embed it almost in an ideal world, which I guess is what we're talking about. All that data would be embedded in some kind of metadata stream, but we're not quite there yet. So right now we embed it in, as I said, supervisor, script supervisor notes or slate notes or camera reports. Camera reports are another good, you know, really good thing. Um, you know, a lot of times, for instance, shooting plates, it's just not practical depending on what lenses you have or what the layout is. It's like, we know that this shot out of a car is on a 24 millimeter lens, but we had to shoot the plate at 50 millimeters. But we know, for instance, that we were at a 2.8 and we're focused only five feet away. So we know that when it's comped together, it should be defocused in the background. So therefore, you can take a 24 millimeter shot and blow up a 50 millimeter plate and it's going to work but not if you just slap it together in editorial you actually got to do a, a blow up of some kind and there's a little bit of editorial manipulation to get you know the the message we're trying to embed into the i guess at that phase what would be the offline edit 
So during that phase, you're getting dailies in. How are you kind of organising the material? Like you, you might have three or four shots which are actually represented by one shot. I mean, mm. how, how, what is that organisational schema? Um, well, the editorial crew will process the dailies the way that they, pro you know, the VFX dailies the same way they process the regular dailies. So you'll get, you know, you get dailies from the lab, you'll go through, make sure everything's in sync and labeled correctly, and then give it to the editor. And then I don't do anything with it other than uh, until the editor hands it back and says, okay, this is the shot, turn it over to the VFX company. And so if there's a, say, a, a blue screen and green screen shot, are you, is it's the editor who's laying those up, choosing the, the background and foreground plates. Um, in and what's your role in that? What's yeah, your role in that? Um, in my experience, uh, I've worked with editors who like to do it themselves, and I've worked with editors who want nothing to do with it. So it just depends. Um, if they like to do it themselves, they'll just do it. And then say, if you look in my reel, whatever, there's this sh new shot. This is how I want it. Or they'll say, I like this. Uh, if it's like a, something like a car driving shot, It'll be, they'll just cut all the foreground elements together and then say, fill out the backgrounds. And then you do it, show it to them, you get notes, do it again, over and over again. Um, for other things, they'll, yeah, it, it, it kind of depends on the scale of the shot, how in-depth we go in editorial, yeah. as opposed to just... Some shots could have guessing. The, yeah. a lot of elements, you know. Yeah, yeah. Like on Noah, we had all these big rock monster things. I and, bet. There's a lot yeah. of... Yeah. And it's we not just foreground, background, right? Right. And we just started with these two-dimensional pictures. That and where do they come from? Is that just a, like an art department? Um, we actually got those from ILM. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So they, they were involved yeah, in... Yeah, they were concepts that we started with. And then they started... You know, they moved from those to very rudimentary animation throughout. Um, when we... We're talking with Ian about his process. He mentioned like a magic whiteboard that mm -hmm. that's up on the wall. I, I, do you have your own magic whiteboard? Are you using? I mean, I know a lot of visual effects editors have kind of their own secret databases, file maker mm -hmm. databases. What what do you use to kind of just track? Yeah, the ins I, and outs? I have a file maker database that I use um, to track all the shots. Um, only I only track things that are actually in progress. So. I'll track the shots and the scans, but not, you know, we'll, we'll have the code book for the whole show that I'll be yeah. able to refer to, but I don't track every single VFX take or something like that. It's no. only once it's, once it's this in is the shot. it, and then I will take responsibility for it. So what's then that interface as you get ready, to, you know, it's the shots kind of assembled into, into a first edit, you mm -hmm. know, of a sequence. What are you, what are you passing back to Chris that he would kind of be able to start um i normally will you'll scan it or pull it or whatever and um i generally will do uh 48 frame handles if it's early in the show um and if they'll let you spend that money um I mean, it's a different world now that it's digital right? yeah yeah it, it yeah um sometimes i've also had vendors who don't like getting that many handles um so it's kind of a back and forth um and then uh, I make count sheets, which just have the general information. Um, so the name of the shot, the scene in the slate, the in time code, the out time code, how many frames it is, um, and then in relation to the scan, what frame, what you frame do that of the for scan each layer for each, of the yeah. Well, yeah, the uh, count sheet is per shot, so it'll have multiple elements right, if it okay. has multiple uh, yeah multiple layers well, in the shot yeah. And are you? 
Chris, are you using this database? Do you construct your own? Um, we we construct our own. Yeah. But there would be an interface where they may give us uh, an Excel sheet or a Google Doc or even a PDF or a text file or something that we use as a starting place. I mean, the needs on the tracking that happens on our side is just vastly different than what's happening on the editorial side. Um, do you want to talk about that for a second? What do you mean by that? Well, it's... I mean, it's a completely different process, and I think that, uh, you know, it's... There's a, there's a view out there that it's like, okay, give the VFX house the footage, and then they give us back finished footage. <laughs> it's like this black box kind of thing. But what actually happens in the middle is, you know, the footage comes in, hopefully it's named right, hopefully know what to do with it, hopefully it's a complete pull, there's not missing frames, the handles are correct, the handles are consistent... Uh, it's in a color space that we know. We know how to get in and out of that color space. Um, and given all of that information, then we can do an ingest, which basically says get it into our database, get the files into a place that's going to make sense, create initial templates for every shot that that communicate the color settings and the, the range of the shot. You know, for instance, 48 frame handles, it's like, that's great. Unless the shot is only seven frames long, then we have a, you know, whatever it is, 70, 78 frames or whatever of, of frames that are, are not useful. So if there's heavy roto, for instance, we only want to roto those seven frames, plus or minus a few, if that's all that's in the edit. So, so all of that information kind of is discovered during the ingest process. And then from there, it would go to our, you know, we basically, our flow is... Upon ingest, we read the footage and write the footage back out, having done nothing to it. And then we build an edit from that rendered material. So at that point, we have, we have a, a, like a QC checkpoint that says, if we ingested the footage, rendered it out, having done nothing to it, created a QuickTime, put it on a timeline, and it matches the reference edit, which should be, which is really what we need to get started, just in general, is a reference edit with text overlays that say, you know, in even if it's not roughly comped, it says, okay, in that blue screen goes Spooky Mansion, and in that blue screen goes, you know, the green car, and just whatever the thing is, if it's just typed in there, then we know. Because a lot of times, like, especially with uh, the way things are going with cosmetics, it's like, it's not obvious if you have a shot that it's a visual effects shot, because they're like, oh, well, you know, they don't like the color of her you know, her dress. We want to change the color of the dress. It's like, okay, well, just give us a text overlay. We know that. And from from these various bits of information, we assemble the database and we check to make sure that the footage we have corresponds exactly to the database and the edit that's produced is consistent with what everyone's expecting. Even though we haven't actually done any visual effects at that part, but that's, that's step one for us. Can I quickly go over some of those concepts? The file naming convention, like... You're you're just getting the so if it's a digital shoot, which you know ninety percent of them are now, you're just getting the raw file from you know if someone's pulled it off a drive and just giving it to you, or are you getting a are you getting a, a file that's rendered into a particular? Do you say okay, this is our naming convention, or are you doing that? We pray that we don't have to do that. <laughs> right. Let's put it that way. Uh, in Again, our ideal world, which, you know, <laughs> we would get, for instance, DPX or EXR or 
some flavor of very high resolution, very lossless, or or either either you know uncompressed or or at least very little loss, for instance, material, namely DPX or EXR files, that represent each shot with handles named properly or at least easily renameable and identifiable, uh, and we start from there. And now I I say all that that being the ideal world because there's a lot of other scenarios. You know, for instance, if you're shooting on a RED camera, it's it's only been fairly recently in terms of, you know, the past few years that you could actually write an R3D file. So now you can actually get R3D trims and they're useful. But before it was like, oh, well, here's an R3D file. That's your camera original. You only need 12 frames out of it. There's 27,000 frames there. You have to find those frames. And unfortunately, the file is named against the camera roll and the, the count of the camera roll has no correlation to the slate or to any other, you know, a lot of times like the slate naming of something is uh, confusing and fragmented from our point of view because it's so easy on set to be like, here's shot, again, 27 camera A. Uh, oh, well now we're just gonna throw up a GoPro. We'll call that camera 27B. When in actuality, it's a totally different camera, totally different color settings, totally different format, totally different thing. But, you know, um, we a lot of times go back, unless specifically requested by editorial, we go back and rename everything starting VFX 10, VFX 20, or if it's separated by scenes, you know, VFX scene 30, shot 10, 20, 30, 40. We rename them to kind of, you know, uh, streamline it all into a into a... Our artists have to communicate to each other is, is the point, and it's very hard to say, hey, are you working on shot 27A part B 2C alt 7? You know, it's just, it doesn't, it's not operationally very efficient. Uh, what is the organizational? So you said, you know, you'll have the shot, but how, how are you organizing that? If a shot has seven elements, how is that organized in your world? Uh, well, from a supervision, you actually hit on an interesting point with the, rock monsters and Noah from my approach generally if possible in our ideal world again is to consider of all the pieces of footage that comprise a final shot uh, you usually want I like to pick one and call that the shot and everything else is a plate this is a this is a thing that I found is like the word plate is is not a very hard and fast definition actually some people call the the part with the blue screen the plate and some people call the part that replaces the blue screen a plate. I don't know why, there's just, a, people don't agree on that word. But I call the shot the shot, and that's the footage that drives, that is effectively what comprises the bulk of the shot, and all other footage is a slave to that. So for instance, the part with the blue screen is the shot, and the part, you know, for instance, back to our Victorian house, like the, the Victorian house is the shot, and then the beautiful beach outside the front door, that is the plate. And so in our naming convention, it would be, you know, for instance, scene 20, shot 10, and then the plate would be scene 20, shot 10A. And that just sits in its own folder, and it's completely its own little sovereign island of data that doesn't really interact with anything else unless assets are involved or, or CGs involved or, or other plates from our repository. And, and notating the color pipeline, I mean, is there a... If, if you've got, say, multiple formats, mm -hmm. is there anything that you're doing to kind of keep those separate or notate those or 
kind of even just warning, like, look out. Here um, it comes. I mean, we get everything as MXF files yeah, already, right. so I don't... But are you aware that... I mean, do you have to worry that that might... Like, if there's, uh, you know, uh, 8K Sony file as the foreground plate and a GoPro kind of as the background plate, does that concern you? Do you do anything in particular? Not really. Um, especially now that labs can actually process everything for us. Um, before, we'd have to give the whole file to them and then they would have to deal with it themselves. But yeah. now we're getting to the point where we can go pull this, send this. And then I have always assumed that they just send UDPX. But and do you just send them the a... You just send them an EDL per layer. Yeah, so yeah, I would send an EDL and um, a reference QuickTime of exactly what it is because sometimes with digital it gets a little, some metadata can get screwy so then they can look and see if it's actually the right thing before they go through the trouble of actually pulling yeah. it. But and, and hopefully from our point of view, the, the CDL information is embedded into the EDL, mm -hmm. which doesn't always happen. Avid's pretty good about it, but other... Um, you know, other editorial packages don't necessarily carry the CDL through that stage. So, so we we usually request if you do a pull, mm -hmm. if you request a pull, we would request the the pulled files as well as the EDL because that that helps our automation system on ingest. Right. Then you can take exactly what I asked for and have it, or have the information of exactly what was asked for. Right. Yeah. And and ensure that it's consistent. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a, if there's if there's fifty steps to the, any process, then there's fifty points of failure. So it's, and it's not no one, it's not anyone's fault. It's just you know we we have a whole kind of defense field there to try to you know stop these inconsistencies from happening. It's just an important phase of the process. How are you? Um, are you notating the color pipeline, or, or are you insisting that as the each shot and plate comes to you, it's all in a common color space? Oh, you described the holy grail. <laughs> right. It doesn't exist, though. It's Sure. Usually, Many people have died trying to find it, though. Yeah, seriously. Uh, usually, if, if we're fortunate enough to be on set, I usually spend a lot of time with the DIT and the DP and really talk through their color flow and understand what's going on. Because even... Even with the best intentions on set, you're still not guaranteed that their intentions with color are actually followed in the dailies creation process. And even still, you don't know that editorial is exporting reference clips exactly right. You know, if there's three checkboxes, then there's, you know, really six combinations of ways that you can screw that up or get it right. You know what I mean? So it's... Uh, it's it's a thing, but but if if we're not fortunate enough to be on set, we'll we'll talk to editorial or even talk to dailies and say, what steps exactly did you take to get to this quick time that we're looking at that we need to match, and um, that's that's also a considerable amount of effort on our part in terms of the again we're still even just talking about ingest. We haven't even talked about the visual effect or delivery part. We're just still trying to get it in the door on our side, trying to get it into the black box. So, I mean, let's talk about that version one that you're outputting. I mean, you're are you working directly with the director? Are you funneling through the editor to kind of get the visual effects? What is your role in, in starting to present? It depends again on on the show and what the I guess relationships Noah and are. Chris um, Rock's film are completely different. They scales. were very very different movies. Yeah. Um, and uh, generally, it comes from the editor. Um, and then as the show will go on, 
sometimes the director will just come straight to you about something. Um, but yeah, the editor will just give you this is this is this I want this make this happen, and then we go to you and say please make this happen. And so well, and that and that is an interesting point that I just wanted to mention is that the the workflow that I described before calling a shot a shot and then having elements that are kind of you know secondary or or at the mercy of the shot it's an easier way to conceive of it at least for us um, is is a workflow that doesn't work in a in a heavily CG laden film for instance Noah where there is no shot to edit and the artist can't possibly get started until something's temped together. And even once it's temped together, it may not be a good edit, so you have to bring it up one or two levels to start to feel, and then you have to do a temp audio track, and you have to, you're kind of temping things together. And, and probably VFX gets, you know, I think I think probably sketch artists or previs artists are involved until yes. it bubbles up to something VFX-ish. It might be just very... Some one step above previs where we start to get a feeling for color and light and mm -hmm. and action and framing and things like that, um, which is a distinctly different workflow than just give us the footage and we'll work on it. Yes. What are the usual conversations that? I mean, do you have you don't have direct access to the director then? I mean, the director's not coming into you and saying, "I want to look at this shot." Like say on. Darren on Noah would, would sometimes um, sometimes we generally had um, normally the editor would take a look at it and send notes before it got to the point where Darren I mean, saw in it. those sequences where it's pretty much all visual effects like how mm -hmm. is what is your interaction with Andy how is he is he instructing a previs crew are you getting involved with that yeah we had um, on Noah there was a bunch of previs especially for like the you know, big battle scene that and happened. That, that entire thing you, was previs. Yeah. Before you started. Yeah. So when we started editorial, there was all this previs that Andy started cutting before we even had dailies. Um, yeah. And uh, and then when we got the elements for that, he would kind of comp the elements on top of the previs. So Andy would do the. So he himself. yeah, Andy is the person He's who does the, the comps like. himself. <laughs> yeah. Um, and. Uh, so then we would have, this is what we want the background to look like, more or less from the previs, but using this real element of... But it's your, you, you're then working with the supervisor. Are you that conduit to the supervisor then to kind of... I guess there's a big visual effects team in, on that show. But yeah. say on the Chris Rock one, are you the conduit to the visual effects team? Yeah, yeah. On the, on the Chris Rock movie, it was just me. Um, so I would go back and forth between... And how do you deal with that? I mean, one of the things that you often encounter in visual effects is that they want to talk to the director, but there's always a kind of remove, certainly if they're in a, you know, different part of the world, you mm -hmm. know, how do you, how can you get that, communicate what the director is say, saying to the, to the team and to, what, what is that process? Um, we will use CineSync a lot. Um, oh, right. Okay. Sure. And so, you know, which is a program that you each have a quick time up on your monitor that's synced up to move together and you can draw on it and they can see your drawing. And so you can look at a shot and go, this thing over here, I don't like this. And can that's you between you smaller? and the visual effects. Yeah, companies. so we would on Noah, for example, we, we were working with ILM in California and so we would have these sessions and Darren had a Wacom tablet and he would just draw all over everything and oh so darren's getting involved directly yeah in yeah sessions. so he was very with that kind of stuff he was very actively involved for smaller you know remove that tree over there he wasn't as right yeah invested um and chris how are you dealing with 
like to, de- trying to get to the director, trying to take the notes and iterations? Um, well, again, it depends on if you're involved from the beginning or if you're brought in later. If you're involved from the beginning, hopefully you have a, you know, you've been on set and you've developed some kind of a relationship or rapport where you you can email them directly. Hopefully, it depends on the director, of course. Depends on the show. Um, a lot of times, I, I mean, CineSync is great, uh, but again, it sounds silly, but like text overlays, just to say, I mean, that, and that's effectively what CineSync is doing. It's just doing it in real time. Yeah. You know, but, uh, but uh, you know, we'll get shows in and they'll they'll give us a reference at it and then a, and a Excel file and they're not, it's not that easy to, to put those two things. It seems like it would be easy, but it's not. You know, well, it's not music. It can't just be notated like, as a set of numbers, and then you just kind of punch in the numbers, right? There's actually like a, an artistry to it. Right. Well, and it's, it's especially, you know, with reference clips, it's like if you do a window burn of time code, you have the question of is it the time code of the edit? Is it the time code of the scene? Is it the time code of the source footage? And then how do you correlate that to the footage you actually get? And then what what time code is actually written into the Excel sheet or whatever, you know, it's 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 just worth mentioning that it's again there's there's fifty points of fifty things that have to go right there's fifty points of failure and those are just little tiny things that we uh, frequently find ourselves trying to you know trying to sort out before we can get started with things. So as you're turning over version one, it's not just the case that you're just making something for editorial or just making H two six. Like what are you actually delivering back every time there's a version to deliver back to back to the edit room and back to the the crew well so to go back to our kind of black box analogy we receive the footage we ingest it we render it once having done nothing to it and create a quick time from that build an edit that matches and then from that edit we export scenes that are playable web compressed uh you know 960 by 540 h264 files or something like that 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 you can play on a phone or an ipad or or a web browser or whatever um, which is which is really an export from our editorial system. So at that point, we've proven theoretically that we can pull it in and get it out with the proper color, the length, the timing, all of that stuff is proven. From there, what what we would call V1 is something that we present to editorial that says, here is here's a clip that represents what we're seeing in our edit with sound, and here's all the component clips so that you guys can cut it in on your side and make sure it matches. And that and it may be that we still haven't done any visual effects. Usually we'll do something you know before we actually present, you know, at least a version 1 being we got the note, we're going to change the color of her dress, here's a rough rendition or whatever, but not always. I mean, especially on uh, you know, bigger shows like multi-vendor shows, it actually does prove something to say, "Hey, we gave you files and you gave them back to us right." That's that's an accomplishment a lot of times, you know. Um, you know, I can't necessarily name names, but like, you know, if you're on a show with four or five visual effects vendors, um, it it does present your work well when it doesn't, ironically, when it doesn't stick out of the edit for being in the wrong color or the wrong framing or the wrong, for instance, letterboxing, or if you have overlays or time codes or whatever you know whatever other doodads need to be there before the actual delivery proving that you can do all that is is an important step so our our flow would say 
read it in, render it out, having done nothing to it, create the QuickTime for editorial and the QuickTime for, for web viewing. And then, again, we've proven at that point that we can deliver something that works for editorial, but we've also internally proven that we have deliverable DPXs that work, deliverable QuickTimes for editorial, and deliverable, you know, so, so basically at that point, we've, we've done a full dress rehearsal of everything tech, and now we can get into the creative visual effects aspect of it. And then when you're getting this material back, what is your, you have a QC process that you compare it to the reference? Say if, if the molecule delivered that back to you for the first time, mm -hmm. what is that process? Yeah, I um, just get an Avid Kodak QuickTime and uh, import it. And then I normally, um, I keep, depending on the scale of the show, I kind of organize it differently. Um, like on the Chris Rock movie, because there were only 200 visual effects, um, I would just have each scene subclipped into a folder, and then I would cut just on top of the dailies layers the versions of the shots as they came in. Right, yes. Um, on Noah, we had one folder per shot because there were just so many. Um, yeah. And uh, so then, I yeah, I would just cut it on top and then just A and B between them to make sure that it lines up consistently throughout. But see, this is, this is a curious thing for me is that you you manually cut them in, right? Yes. You don't use the time code in the QuickTime or any kind of replace footage or anything no. like that. No. No, it's normally, you know, you just count in however many handles you know you're getting and you just make sure it lines up and then paste. That's hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what? So modern, right? Yeah. Cool. But I mean, well, that... we've, we've like killed ourselves to get time code into quick times not kill ourselves but it, it took a lot of work and it, some people use them and some people don't and it's just like a curiosity it depends on what editing package you're using and what mm -hmm. your workflow is and and like you said how many visual effects shots there are is, right. is a big one but though that time code as well as also i mean let's talk about for a minute what happens when it's wrong like what are your checks you must be checking visual time code on the different so say if you get the shot back and one of the elements is completely wrong or like, how are you checking through that, and what would you pass back? Well, or for instance, sometimes you'll have a, you know, the, our, our foreground and the plate, and depending on how your comp is set up, it might be that the, the time code of the back plate mm -hmm. flows through as opposed to the time code of the foreground. And that's a very simple mistake for us to make. But if, if it's not flowing to editorial and time code confirmed, then we don't know that, that we've got it inverted. Right. And so potentially some online editor who's going to have to conform it later is going to have to manually cut that unless they're also manually cutting. But, but we don't usually get that kind of feedback. Like we don't necessarily know if little mistakes like that were made. Yeah, I don't. I don't ever look at time code of quick times that come in from visual effects. <laughs> so spoilers. We all learned something today. <laughs> okay. But I mean, as you're QCing the shot, then how are you? Uh, is it you're the first? step into the director not seeing that so yeah yeah so everything would come straight to me or vfx editorial download it import it and then it's literally frame by frame making sure it lines up with what the editor gave you with the original that the editor gave you saying i want this yeah and so um you know you sync them up and you just click back and forth for the entire shot and then if it's good, give it to the editor and then... And that's the hierarchy of approval. Then the editor will go through And then through the editor it. will give it to the director. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes the director will see, oh, this thing came in. I want to come see it now. And they'll just come and say, show it to me now. Um, 
And yeah. hopefully you've checked it before they come <laughs> and ask for it. So then that's version one. Yes. So then as you go through then, what is that process say? I mean, it, it's good to kind of look at both scales, the Noah and the Chris Rock. Like, So you've got version one, you're getting notes back to version two. What is that process? Like the, the director will come in, you'll write an email to them? Yeah, normally I... So the dress back. should be more red or, you know, the, the mat yeah. slipping or... Yeah, gen general kind of feedback, things like that. It, it, depending, um, we also, we like to get um, some kind of delivery memo from the vendor that says what the shot is being presented for, like what level of shot it is. Is that on the slate? Do you, um, I know, Chris, you wanted to talk about slating and... Yeah, on on the slate and um, I like to just get an Excel document because then I can import that into my database. Got you. And track the actual versions. Um because if, if something's being presented for final, then you can say, oh, I found this problem. This yeah. isn't for final. But if it's for a temp, you don't, I, I don't want to just be like, oh, hey, look at this thing that I, you probably <laughs> right, saw. You're looking at it as like, you don't want to be a jerk. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, it, so the, the notes vary depending on, you know, the, the level of the How stage close of the you shot. are to yeah, <laughs> delivery, yeah. right. Um, but if it's some kind of creative thing, then obviously I'll they'll give me the note and then I'll I'll normally send it along. Do shots diverge? Like, will you get, like... I mean, it, it, it doesn't seem to me that it's ever quite... You know, you're just building the blueprint. Like, there are creative things. The edit throws up things that affect the visual effects, that affect the, the actual shots themselves. How is that process mediated? Because it must be like juggling, really. You've got... Particularly on the big films, where you've got the sequence, you've got all these you know, animated characters in there. You've got all these things. And um, how, how are you kind of keeping, like, on Noah, did you have a sequence unto yourself that you, that's yours? Um, or are you working on everything all the time? I had, uh, no, yeah, it was the, the whole movie all the time. Yeah, um, right. So we had, uh, we just made copies of the editor's reels and just tracked them that way because we could, then we could mark them up and But is there, and... I mean, Chris, you might talk about this, is, what's the room for experimentation in this? Or do, do you all have to kind of do the blueprint of the shot as it was intended in pre-production? How do you allow for the things that you discover when, you know, the shot's not working? Well, we'll we will attempt together different versions and try to create kind of a, you know, what we affectionately call a buffet platter of, <laughs> of, uh, of choices. I mean, our, our goal is obviously to... And I think the whole post-production process is, is, a, is a process of taking as many options as possible to begin with and really closing it down to one option that actually survives the final piece. So, so if we get into a state where there's, you know, shot, I don't know why, it's shot, shot 27 is my number today. So shot 27 and tw shot 27 alt and shot 27 alt 2, we may exist in that space for a while where we're saying, you know, the... You know, the, the truck explodes and the fire is purple in this one and it's, the fire is yellow in this one and the fire is more not really there. It's just covered by smoke in this one. And we'll we'll take those down a certain road and, and deliver them to editorial because they, you know, it's not it's not really ever, I don't know if you can make such a sweeping statement, but it's it's usually not fair to judge any shot outside of the context of the edit. So it's, you know, it has to... It may be that, oh, that shot with the purple fire looks amazing. However, 
if we put that shot in there in purple, and we wouldn't know this necessarily in visual effects. I mean, we might, we might not though. Know that oh, if 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 the pur if the fire is purple, then a minute from now, when the characters meet up and talk about oh, the explosion that was green, then all of a sudden it doesn't make sense, even though it looks great. But we wouldn't necessarily always know that from the visual effects side. So it's you know, there's there's a back and forth process of deliver options, see what survives, let a lot of eyes see it on editorial side and make sure that it really serves the story and then kind of a wash, rinse, repeat until everyone, it kind of coagulates into a good place. And Donna, if you had a shot 27, alt 1, alt 2, alt 3, how are you, do you have three different timelines? Do you just kind of turn on and off the shots and you kind of play them and everyone decides? Um, yeah, I, I would just have them all stacked and then just go through one and then hide that layer and then go through one and then hide that layer. I mean, layer. that was something, it was interesting as we were talking just before this and Chris made the comment that editorial keeps everything but you don't necessarily keep every version of every shot ready and waiting. You're progressing the shots, aren't you? And, and it's not that easy to go back and, oh, can I see version three again, you know? Yeah, I mean, we might keep versions of quick times, but we don't keep anything else. I mean, we don't keep intermediate renders. We keep the project files for everything because they're they're cheap and easy to keep you know they're only a few hundred kilobytes perhaps or a few megabytes but keeping every render is impossible and the general philosophy is that uh a higher version is a better version yeah so i mean and and that's just in that simple statement it's like okay well does that mean that version 18 is better than 17 yes does it mean that version 100 is a lot better than version 18 no it just means it's better. We may be skipping numbers just for the for the purpose of differentiating. You know, maybe we're in 27 and 27 alt and 27 alt 2, and we all sit down on the floor and arm wrestle it out and decide 27 alt 2 is the best one, and we're going to go with that. We may skip the alt and just call it version 100 now. So we know that there was a like a big gap in the versioning that indicates a decision has been made. We know you know, in the version chain when this happened and we know how to move forward because 101 is better than 100. And, you know, Can that's, you, that's our flow. It's not everyone's flow, but that's our flow. But it's in the software package itself that you could, say, roll back to 27 and then branch off from there. Yeah, you would open the project file if you are a, you know, doing the right thing, you would say open version 17 and save it as version 102 and then render version 102, it would be really bad to open version 17 and just render it because then the then it throws our workflow off because the assumption is that the highest version is the version. So version 101, for instance, if that's the project file, but you rendered version 17, then we have a mismatch and we don't necessarily, you know, you don't necessarily know that or you wouldn't want to be debugging that. And who's setting the? Are they your versions? Are you? Is it the same version? Are you working on the same version? Like, do, do you set the version number and then you say, okay, this is the change for version eighteen, and then you do version eighteen, or are they kind of independent of each other? Um, for me, the version numbers don't matter as long as they're always different every time I get one. So if it right. if it jumps four hundred, that that doesn't matter to me at all. It's just in the stack, whatever's the yeah. Top. It just as long as it's sequential or you know a higher number that doesn't repeat so we go See, I, I would not say that that's i would say that's usually how it is but it's not always the way it is there's there's times where 
our delivery numbers have to always be incremental, 16, 17, 18, 19. And then our internal numbers are, they just go crazy, but there's no, not necessarily a correlation between the delivery number and the uh, version got, number, got you. which is, I'm sure it helps on the editorial side, but it's just, I mean, it's it's a lot more work on our side to do that. It, it doesn't seem like it would be, but it, it actually is because it's, it's so easy to make a mistake in that, in that context. So we're going from then individual shots into then pulling together sequences. And this could be green screen sequence that you've, you know, you haven't done a process trailer, you've done a green screen car. Or on the kind of largest scale, like all the water or the, you know, around the boat or the mythical creatures. At working at that kind of scale, does it kind of, change does it make your job more difficult because you're you're having to look at the individual shots and maintain those but also this sense of a sequence and continuity i mean is that your job to um to some extent yeah um like on noah when you know there's all these animals walking if you get a version back and the bear is all of a sudden missing and it's obvious that the bear is missing then that's a problem Where's um, the bear? So, yeah, so for things like that, you, I would always cut it in and have a, the sequence of the whole scene and watch the whole scene to make sure that there's nothing egregious. And, Chris, are you building a sequence on your side? Let's say if you had the, even just a green screen car sequence, do you have an edit that you're dropping stuff into? Like, are you updating the sequence edit with your shots? Absolutely. We have to. Um. We have to just for our own QC purposes, but also because, uh, you know, I think it's it's. It might sound funny, but a lot of times when you're doing visual effects, there is an element of of salesmanship in terms of selling it to editorial or selling it to the director, and. You know, I, as a VFX artist, you may sit there and watch 17 frames loop for an hour or two hours and just try to figure out why is this shot not working? I don't understand why. Why does it feel odd? What is it? What's going on here? And you put it in the edit and all of a sudden it's like, oh, it makes perfect sense because it's, you know, where your eye goes within the context of the edit. And, oh, you know, the old saying, like, uh, you know, sound is half of your picture. It's like watching the picture with audio actually will forgive certain sins or will answer certain questions or will remove the oddness of... Of, of certain aspects of a shot. So we have to work in the context of an edit. We don't get to pick the edit. Our job is to match editorial's edit. So as you're pulling together, do the sequences then take on version numbers or does that happen at a kind of real level? Yeah, it's it's always just within the real. Um, right, so you'll have real two, version eight. Yeah. And then the individual shot versions. Yes. And so at that stage, are you then just keeping the sequence on a little timeline and or are you working you're working within the reel to maintain that you're all working on the same um it, timeline it, it depends on the editor um some editors are very protective of their reels and they don't like you cutting things in without them specifically saying cut this shot in yeah. um some editors will cut them in themselves um like on noah i would always every day we got new shots i would give them to andy in a bin that would have them cut into sequence as well as just the individual clips so he could either paste that sequence over his or... Oh, and he's got a master timeline that you yeah, don't touch. That I don't touch unless he tells me to. Yeah, right. Yeah. And um, are you turning over then every version of that reel so that Chris can 
maintain his edit? Are there certain junction points that you go, okay, we've got a new edit of this sequence now, and now it's time? Like yeah. you might skip a couple of versions. Yeah, it would when it normally um, if if something's extended. And they're yeah, and they're they know for sure that yeah. they want to extend it. We'll send that right away. When things are shortened, we don't always send it immediately because you don't want to say, you know, stop working on those last eight frames, and then a month from then go, oh my god, oh, we, we need, need those eight frames. Yeah. So, um, so we try not to send that unless it's something that's like super complicated and hard, and then you say, relax, stand down. <laughs> And Chris, on your side, do you do you have an? Is there an editorial assistant on your team that that's just manning an avid that or, or something that's keeping this conformer? Yeah, yeah, basically. I mean, it's our it's our producers and associate producers who are. Uh, you could call it maintaining an edit, and it is maintaining an edit, but it's also again creating. We have checkpoints as material comes in for ingest, and we have the you know, the, the, the companion checkpoint of outgoing material, which is a producer or associate producer uh, watching the edit. We're putting our name on this before it leaves, you know, before it goes out the door. Um, I mean, our system is pretty streamlined where it's, once we've done the initial cut in, and if we get an EDL, it may be that we don't have to manually cut things in. We just, you know, do a match back based on time code. Um, we don't, you know, it's, "Quote unquote," managing the edit is really managing swapping out versions. So it's not uh, right. You know, so you you don't maintain a timeline of all the different layers of, as well as your own material. We coming maintain in. a timeline of just to finish the shots. best version, which yeah. is the highest version. But I mean, Unless what I mean is, the alt scenario would for the green screen car shot. Would you maintain a version which has got the front and back plates on V one and V two, or would you just have yeah. your rendered? Well, no, we would take V1 as the, the reference cut provided by editorial, and then V2 are the visual effects shots sitting on top. Gotcha. And so then, at any moment, you can turn off the visual effects shot and make sure things are in sync, or that there hasn't been a, a huge color shift, or a lot of times, uh, especially like retimed shots, you know, you want to make sure that it's frame-to-frame -frame accurate, or if a frame's been um, repositioned in editorial, for instance, or, or a lot of times... Um, Editorial will just put a color correct on the reference, and that's fine because they're trying to, you know, uh, an, an offline edit is is uh, the closest analogy would be something like a sketch that says this is what we want it to look like when we match it back to the final conformed best awesome stuff and then run it through color and meet it with sound. But until you go through all those finishing phases, it's basically a sketch, right? I mean, and so it's it's like obviously it's fine to put a color correct on a timeline in. Avid or Final Cut or whatever. It's just that that's our moment to realize, okay, even though we think we have all the color right at this phase, for some reason these two shots don't match. And it may be that our color is actually just plain old wrong, or it may be that color correction was applied in the Avid or whatever. So we, we maintain V1 as the reference we're trying to match, and V2 is our what we're providing back to editorial. So we're getting close then to... You know, you've iterate, it, it had all the iterations of these versions and you're building up reels and you're getting closer and closer to the DI. So what are you doing to kind of prepare for prepare for that? Are you, are you starting to wind down once turnover to DI starts? Um, well, we wind down once everything's been delivered. So yeah. if they're still delivering shots into the DI, we're, we're still there as it's still coming in. Um, well, I'll generally start to... Um, 
I'll color the shots differently once they've been finaled. Um, uh-huh, right. And, uh, just in your edit. Just in, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah the actual clip color. Um, and then uh, I'll generally cut them into a higher layer in the editor's reel so they can see that these are, th- they stand out as, as this is final. Final, yeah. You can't change it. Final, then anyway. final, final, and then. Yeah, please, for <laughs> real final. Yeah, please, for real final, <laughs> shoot me. Um, and then, is there a point, Chris, where you change gear and then you're starting to render for DI then? You're starting to render full? Because you haven't been rendering those the whole time, have you? The full, full like, delivered? No, we have. Yeah. That's the, that's the purpose of step one on Ingest, is to read it in and write it out, and that's full res in, entirely. Um, I mean, it's, a, it, that's a, it's an important step. It seems wasteful, kind of, and, and you could argue that it's a little wasteful if you were doing, like, Say for instance, like an 8K show or something, or a stereoscopic show where that's, you know, we did a show in, in stereo 5K, and it's it's not trivial to render a thousand frames in stereo at, you know, when they're coming out of 200 megabytes a frame. It's, you know, it's it's significant. However, um, just from an operational standpoint, if you haven't done the full res render at least once, you don't even know what you're in for, for delivery. So it it again another checkpoint for us to know that we're not overcomplicating the shot or we don't need to reach out and get more resources or, or render on a the cloud somewhere or what it makes sure that things are, are, are well handled by our capacity is we we basically re-render everything each time so if, if editorial is looking at a quick time again there's there is a dpx final deliverable online sequence or shot backing that up and that's our normal flow and Zana, there must be a point at which you can't assess any longer in the Avid, yes. you go over to the DI and you're doing a spotting session with the colorist and making sure everything's sat in. Yeah, we'll do um, VFX review sessions at the DI, so we'll ask them to send all the 2K files for whatever shots, or 2K, 4K, whatever they are, for whatever shots that we want to look at. And would you have been doing those reviews as you go as well, like in a theater? Um, You'd come down here and... Generally only for final. Right, okay. Um, unless it's something that you need to see really yeah. big to see all the detail. Um, but generally only when we really think this is it. I can't see anything else on my plasma or my monitor and we have to The final shot real. where Russell Crowe throws a telephone at God, yeah. then yeah. <laughs> you got to see that in the you big screen. You remove the telephone. Yeah, that's right. So then, um, Chris, for you, what are the kind of, you know, top tips for delivering into DI without killing anybody? Because that's a pretty stressful period for you guys. Us delivering to DI? Yeah, iterations of versions, they're seeing things every day. You know. Yeah, versions as they relate to the the names of the folders, the names of the files, um, frame numbers, that seems trivial, but it's not, because some shows, the first frame is always a frame 1000, some shows frame 1 is frame 1, some shows the frame number is actually the decimal representation of the time code so you have these like seven digit long frame numbers so that's that's a thing and again I'm, I don't know why but I'm harping on this whole we read it in we write it out and that's the reason we do that is step number one is to just kind of reveal whatever these bugs are that we need to know about um, I mean one thing that's been common in all the talks is just pipeline testing yeah in all of these three turnovers it's been a common theme that you've just got to find out you know what's going to happen Right. Leaving it till, you know, it'll be right on the night is always a bit of a disaster. Uh, I would also say things like, well, I, I think I mentioned slates and making making sure those are named properly. 
Um, the physical delivery a lot of times is 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 a thing because it's it's obviously if you're delivering in batches, it may be like okay, there's 400 shots outstanding, and we just delivered 150, and then we delivered 150 more, and we delivered 50 more, and I don't know why, but there's always like these straggler eight or ten shots at the end where it's like ah, mistake, ah, last minute change, ah, new idea or whatever, and it's like uh, you know obviously it makes sense to put things on a drive and and mail it or or just walk a drive over uh, on those big batches, but it's obviously more convenient for us to do FTP or Asper or something for those straggler shots of you know 17 frames here and 100 frames there, but. Um, but a lot of times in those final stages, you are just walking a drive over with, you know, a hundred megabytes of data on it, and that's it's just a funny. It's part of the flow. It's part of the process. Sometimes sneaking it is the kind of the only way that a huge film gets yeah. done is a runner running across town, literally. So the the DI is kind of coming to a close. All the shots are approved. Um, how are you preparing to close down the show? Do you have to do particular things to archive? Because there's always a chance that, particularly as you, you're doing studio shows, I mean, there are, there's a pan and scan and everything to get through. How are you archiving all of this information? Um, in the Avid, there will be all the sequences with every version of the shot stacked on top of each other um, with the final one at the very top, a special color, so you know for sure. Um, and then uh, my file micro database would be the other thing it's, that I would. It's interesting. I've often wondered just when that database just becomes a deliverable that people expect and get specified. It's it, it kind of is done on the individual basis. I, like yeah, I, I I don't know if anybody's ever asked for it, but I've always put it there. I think people find it intimidating, so they don't really. And you package want that it. with all the editorial material. Yeah, I'll just put it on the hard drive with all the fine. Generally, on the you know, on the VFX backup final drive that has a folder with all the final quick times, a folder with all the other quick times. And Will you have the final rendered shots? The the, the DPX yeah. stuff? No. No. I, I won't. Yeah. Yeah. But so that, that delivery represents kind of the version chain that led to the final version and it's complete and all versions of quick times are included and every mm -hmm. so it's a ingoing and outgoing. Kind of a an archaeological Yeah, it seems kind of absurd. Of I mean, there's there's that it. line yeah. in the studio delivery which just sums up like all trims, all editor's materials, the code book, that and it's all completely antiquated what they ask for now, but it, everyone just packages everything together, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't, they probably don't, I don't think they open it, you know? You, no. you could put a donut in there. I don't think it would matter, <laughs> but on the off chance that some... They find your donut. You know, yeah, <laughs> that there's some like gung-ho, you know... I don't want to mess with that. If I'm done with the show, I don't, I don't want anybody calling me. And Chris, how are you? What What is your internal archiving process at the Molecule? Our internal archiving is essentially, like I said, we we always overwrite versions, and if we need to go back versions, we re-render. So, at the end of a project, we will have the source material, you know, the, the original raw uh, camera footage, and then we'll have the final render in probably DPX format. And then we'll have the editorial quick times, but we'll throw away everything except for the last version. And then we have all of the project files that led us there, so that might be Nuke files or Maya or Houdini or whatever, you know, 15 other programs that we use, most of which generate intermediate 
things, you know, Maya generates a lot of intermediate files and, uh, and Houdini and any kind of particle simulations or, or whatever, you know, it was always, we throw all that stuff, we basically trim it down to a place where if we really needed to regenerate, if we really needed to get back to the place where this, the patient is back on the table and we're operating on it, we could get there. But we trim it down to, to the smallest possible place we can find. And then we basically let it sit for a month or two. On, on a server? Just sit there, yes. Because Are you required to deliver it as part of a uh, your contract? No, You're not required to really never. deliver archive? For almost all of our graphics jobs, yes. We have to deliver everything including fonts and Pantone colors and the whole everything. But uh, for visual effects shows, no. no, actually no one's ever asked us for that. And then after the two months, do you just put it out to LTO? Do you just... After the two months, we take generally the before and the after, so the raw camera footage and the finished shot, and we render those to to something that's kind of edit-worthy, which might be a ProRes 444 or Avid codec or or sometimes it's just an uncompressed 8 or 10-bit. And we keep those before and afters of the shots that we like, and we throw everything else away. Unless, I mean, you know, let's also say that there's there's assets that go along with each show. So there might be... Um, you know, oh, this show has a, I don't know, a CG eagle in it. Okay, well, we'll keep the eagle because we may need yeah. it in the future and we may change it and put dragon wings on it or whatever the thing is. Or, you know, this show we needed car plates in, you know, around the Taj Mahal, for instance. Okay, we'll keep those car plates. They might be useful in the future. We'll figure out licensing in the future if they're license restricted and at least we'll have them to tempt something together or, you know, so we've built up a repository of, of things. I mean, that's a big part of the value of the ongoing visual effects business, isn't it? To keep all that stuff and to be able to access it and reuse it. And yeah, and it's it, it becomes kind of your raw clay a lot of times because you can, you know, we can change anything. We can put... It's like that music library at the mix house, you know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly the same thing. So we, we, we pull all of that out and, and kind of generalize it into the company-wide repository of stuff but then once you get down to the shot or scene level that's really trimmed down to what we want to use for our reel or for other examples for for work to show people or to, to show our own guys um and and it in an i again <laughs> that ideal world we would keep virtually everything or at least all the before and afters of every single shot plus intermediate stages but from our point of view it's impossible I mean, I don't know what the size yeah. of this delivery is that you guys do. I mean, I would imagine it's on the order of like four or five terabytes or something. Yeah, at the, at the most. Right. For us, it would be if we kept every version of everything and kept, I mean, it would easily be, I don't know, 20, 20 terabytes per show, per pro, you know, per times we have 10 projects going at any one time. I mean, it just yeah. immediately blows up into this unmanageable Thing, I so. mean, the editorial delivery on Noah, it must have been archiving a 32 terabyte ISIS or something yeah, as well. And yeah. you're just a small subsection of that. Yeah, yeah. The editorial is, a... it's quite a significant archive. For, yeah. And I know from having done some work on the other side of the studio, immediately, like the television airline people will take that editorial archive and start to work out, like, the swears and, mm -hmm. you know, what they're going to eliminate, the planes crashing. You know, no one wants to see that on a plane. They take that. Immediately, and that—that's what they're—that's what they're using that editorial archive, but they're probably not, you know, going into remodel visual effects for those versions. 
No, and a lot of times, um, if they were in that situation, we would, frankly, I hate to say, we would probably just take the finished shot and paint on top of it. Yeah. I mean, it just gets to be very, very unwieldy. Like, like I would imagine, I don't know the specifics on Noah, but I would imagine if you want to change one of the shots with with animals in it, it's like, well, what what's the change? It's like, you want wings on the horse? Okay. We don't know why you want that, but great. So we have to, how many steps back do you have to go to get there? And how many assets yeah. do you need? And it's, you know, because it's, a, you end up with this very interrelated ecosystem of assets that are not, it's not just grab the one piece and you have it. It's like that piece relates to the other piece. And the, you know, it's, it's, it's not, uh, it's easier to say before, after, and nothing else except things that are extractable. Yeah. And, and, Really, from the standpoint of a visual effects place, it's like you wouldn't even necessarily like. Sometimes you'd be able to open the files on another, in another facility, but not always. That's that's would be an unfair assumption to say. Oh, this Nuke project will work on any machine that runs Nuke. It's like no, no, because we have all of our gadgets in our facility, and every other facility has different stuff. And it so it it, it you know the the project files themselves only have meaning and context within our Within space. your pipeline, and and it's not that we're trying to be proprietary about it. It's just the nature of of visual effects is that you you're you're putting together gadgets to get the job done. At this point, uh, I'd just like to see if there's any questions from the audience for our panelists. Yeah, we've got one here. Now, I will say that Chris has done a two-hour presentation on our <laughs> podcast already uh, about that question specifically, which is very detailed. It's one of the video podcasts that we've run, and uh, it's a great presentation that Chris has done. It's in two parts. It runs for about two hours, and it's very complex. So at the risk of extending this talk for three hours, but Chris, well, but you like I, to I mean, the, the short answer is we part of the ingest process is to make sure we can ingest material and get it to linear space and then invert that conversion back out to the native space whatever it is so again it's a it's a tech rehearsal on our workflow and we know how to get to that linear space because we've talked to the dit or talked to editorial or talked to the post supervisor or talked to whoever's making the dailies for instance and and learned what those probably four or five steps are to get to something like linear space and then we have to kind of reverse engineer how to get back out to native space. Um, once, you, once you've done that, you can say, take footage from an Alexa camera that is the green screen and footage from a 5D that is the driving plates. And you can merge those two together because you, you've joined things into, well, you've, got, you've, you've arrived, you've followed a path where each piece of footage is in linear space, which theoretically is, is the, a common space where they can communicate to each other. And then, because we've proved that we can invert it, if, if we're doing our job correctly, we've proven that we can invert it, which means that that when editorial gives us the first polls and we give them back quick times, we've done our job right if they don't know the difference. If they, don't, if they can't tell which was the original and which was our, 
our rendered VFX shots. I mean, on multi-vendor shots, multi-vendor um, jobs, there will be kind of someone on the production side whose job at the very beginning is to kind of wrangle all of the different companies. You, you, you would usually send them out color charts, for example, and say, well, whatever your color science is, you've got to run that through your pipeline and return us the same colors. And so each company might have different ways of processing their shots and processing their color internally, which is their business. But what they've got to do is make sure that the color red I'm seeing is the color red you're seeing. That's, that's it in a nutshell. But yeah. that, that is a very, um, it's becoming a very strict process at the start in that pre-production process of making sure everyone's can process correctly. And you're right, you'd never want to be the company that can't return the color charts. You know, it could blow you off the stage before you've even started. Yeah. There was another question, Susan. I don't. Uh, I mean, a lot of times when you're doing commercial work, that that is a very common flow is to kind of pre-grade things, and and you can ask things to be pre-graded. Um, I guess it it depends to some extent on your philosophy and your budget. I think pre-grade is is potentially a cost that you may be able to avoid if the VFX house receiving the material knows how to follow a proper path to, to linearized footage, then theoretically you don't need to pre-grade because we can already get to exactly what they were seeing on set. Now, if they don't like what they were seeing on set, that's a separate question. But if they do like what they saw on set and the DIT, for instance, was, was painting properly or they all arrived at what they like as a kind of best light look, then we should be able to match that without pre-grading. Pre-grading, introducing something uh, with kind of an artist's touch, like a colorist's touch, can sometimes help and sweeten things, but it can sometimes it can sometimes put a level of unpredictability in there where we're, you know, all of a sudden we're chasing some creative vision rather than just kind of relying on the the science and the math of of, of, of color transformations. Yes, Clark. Basically assumes that that uh, the plates were shot and, and matched the inside of the school bus and the, the exterior. It wasn't shot by some second unit guy and done three weeks later or ten weeks later or fifteen weeks later by a different colorist. Uh, all of, you know, well, but our I mean, from the point of view of visual effects, if if the ingest process can produce a foreground and a background, for instance, that are both in linear space then the compositor, who hopefully is good at his job, can match those two elements against each other and, and create a completed shot out of that. Now, that's not to say we can't deliver the final with a mat so that a colorist can, can go on top of that and further make adjustments. Um, but if we're doing our job properly, it should feel like a finished shot. Those pieces should feel glued together when we deliver them, and that's from our compositing artist doing his job, as well as our ingest process being properly, um, I don't like the word calibrated, but properly observing the steps of, of the transformations. Yes, Yana. Um, I have two questions. Actually, I have 2,000 questions, but I narrowed it down to two for our purposes. Um, one is approximately 
how many people does it take to do what you've just been talking about doing? Like, how many human beings does it take to accomplish that? I roughly know how many it takes for yours, because I pay those people, so I have a sense of that. But, like, how many people are we talking about? Well, I mean, you kind of have to draw averages, but I would say that, that at the minimum it takes one or two people to do ingest. Like, say, it's... it's just on the, let's just, so we're not here all night. Like, just, like, on a, on a, on, like, a... So, to pick an example, like, a... A five hundred thousand dollar. It would take five thousand people to do what you're talking about, but I know no. that five thousand people don't work at the molecule. So, like, of the fifty people that work there, mm -hmm. how many are dedicated to one project at a time? Well, I mean, just to throw out a number, it would be ten or twelve people, okay. for instance, uh, on a half million dollar budget, for instance. Um, but that would be two people ingesting and and a producer or, or a producer and assistant doing output, and then you've got about 10 artists in between. Now, but that's just one example. I mean, a TV show, for instance, um, I mean, I don't really necessarily want to name names, but it may be that we get a poll on Friday or Saturday, and we have five days to deliver 150 shots. So in that situation, all of a sudden, we've got 20 or 25 people working exclusively on this show for five days, and, and so, the the QC process being proven is very important because you don't want to get to Wednesday and realize your whole flow is broken. Um, and you've also got to embed the information that's needed in the reference overlays and the Excel sheets and in our internal dispatching system and tracking system. All that information needs to be in place because you can't, 25 people is too many to make a U-turn with. You've got to pick the direction and go there and get to the finish line quickly. Features are, they have the similar problem, but it's it's a longer timeline, hopefully, not always, but. <laughs> well, that brings me to my second question, which I think we could probably do an entire seminar on, which is change orders, but specifically, have you developed as a facility a good way of tracking how much change orders cost? Or in other words, I know you give an initial bid, but do you have a good way of tracking how much the work you're doing on each shot costs? Or specifically, how much, because you've already bid how much the shot's going to cost, but do you have a good way of tracking or a way that producers have found helpful or a way that's been successful for you for tracking how much the changes for each shot cost? And a good way of explaining to them why it's costing them more than you originally we we do have a pretty good tracking system. Um, it's being improved daily, and that's all. That is really a whole. That could be a whole philosophical. We could talk. About, I can talk for hours about that. But let's just. It's something you built yourself. Parts of it we built ourselves. Parts of it are using, for instance, F Track, which is a shot tracking software. Um, it's 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 an ecosystem of tools that talk to each other, and we can we can arrive at whether we're ahead or behind at any one time. You know, I mean, it's just kind of basic finance and accounting. Is you if if you're ahead on every single item, great. 
but that never happens. So you lose on some items and you gain on other items, and the, the grand average is really what you care about, and we can arrive at that um, fairly effectively. Now, convincing the producer that they spent more money than they had, that's hard, obviously, or explaining to someone why change orders caused overages is, is that's it's a big topic. And I think showing, there is actually an interesting model that I've heard about some of the stereoscopic conversion places, like, like real frame by framework where it's really time and materials. I have heard some pretty convincing models for, for doing that um, there. I think it's, it doesn't necessarily apply to us because what what we do is so creative and and vague in the sense of time and materials that it's um, it is it's difficult. It's I, I don't think it's difficult for us to track. It's difficult for us to, to sell those overages and if they should happen. Any other questions? Uh, I yes. Have a question about you mentioned your. Um, numbering systems that you get to shots 1 to 7 and then there's an alt and then you say okay we're, we're, we're making a big change you can start naming it 100 but then do you also do you send it back as 28 and 29 do you continue uh, with the original ordering we would editorial? we would like to deliver it back as shot 100 let's put it that way if if editorial receive it will receive it as version 100 then we will deliver it that way and it's If if editorial won't receive shot 100 and they demand that it's shot 28, uh, okay. and it's kind of a split. Some some editorial departments don't want to see breaks in the version chain, and others just don't mind. They just as long as they know, because because we have the you have the delivery Excel sheet that says okay on on April 17th we got shot version 100, so they know, and then they go oh on April 16th we got version 18, so. Within their own record keeping, they can tell that there was a break, if they want to go that way. Um, do, you, do you care about? Um, like uh, we, we just I give don't. The, we, we give um, if it's shot four, and then we do four internal versions, and it's shot eight. We just deliver shot eight. Nobody ever seems to care that the numbers skipped a bunch. And, and uh, that doesn't matter to me. But it does matter to some people. To some productions, yeah, because again, it's like. It's like communicating on a slate where you have 27A and V27A. You're using the numbering system to communicate something, just implicit, without having a database, without having extra doodads around it. You're communicating that those two things go together. And a similar argument could be made. It, it doesn't make us happy, but I get the logic that editorial, if they say, no, 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 the next version is version 18. It has to be version 18. It's them kind of alleviating their own internal tracking by knowing that they didn't miss... 47 versions in between. You know, I think for as the crew gets larger, as the editorial crew gets larger, it's probably more regimented because everyone has to kind of, you, you can't have a meeting every morning and go, okay, well, the, yeah, you are missing four five versions, but we jump from 15 to 20. You know, I think the larger films are more and more regimented. Like Noah would have been more regimented. Oh, uh, no, we didn't care. Oh, you didn't care? <laughs> no. Right. No, not at all. Stand corrected. Who's that bear? <laughs> <laughs> um, are there any other questions? Uh, yes, Clark. When, uh, from the DI side, you know, we, we have clients who say, uh, we're going to do the VFX in two common, uh, you, you know, they shoot red 5K or something, but they're going to do the VFX in two. So uh, one of the real common problems that we get is that um, 
were same as source files, even if they're they're larger than what the Ullman composite will be. A, a, the classic example of this is Airy Raw, where anamorphic Airy Raw, where the actual file size is larger. It's 22 something or other, but you know, it's it's larger than 2048 wide at, at two. Gigs. If you if you deliver it, if with I deliver all the if you deliver it square, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. If I deliver it rectangular, um, uh, you know, to us it's a matter of complete indifference. But we always seem to go through this debate because the client doesn't even know what I'm talking about, and then the VFX vendor starts having to figure out what they really. Right. Well, the the two sides of the argument are, if they shot in 5K and they want to deliver VFX in 2K or deliver their online in 2K, the two sides of the argument are, we know that this is the frame we want. We'd rather have smaller files and fewer options. Because again, like I said before, the on the one hand, you want to preserve all the options you can in post, but it's also philosophically the job of the whole post production process to eliminate all options down to the final thing. So. Just tempering those two sides of, of the thing is worth keeping in mind. So if you decided, okay, that's the framing that we want, we shot it the way we want it, then deliver it 2K, and that's that's what it is, and, and VFX should flow from there. The, the inverse of that argument is, well, the whole reason we shot at 5K is so that we can do repos and, and, and reframe shots and find new ways of using the material that we didn't necessarily anticipate. Or, for instance, on a 5K show, they may overscan the whole thing by you know a few percent you know everything's everything's five millimeters wider than they want just to have that flexibility so if if a particular client is truly decided about that they they, they shot it the way they want it then I would say yes absolutely deliver 2k but that's I just that's rare yeah. I think delivering 5k it's a little annoying on the VFX side because it's it's bulkier files and more options when really we want kind of less options. But at least when they call you up and say, hey, we shot this at 5K, right? Can we just punch in by 200%? You know, <laughs> normally you would have to say uh, no, but oh, well, this is 5K. So, okay, if we're delivering 2K, yes. And we have that in the original source, so we can do that. Yes. Yes. Having worked on one of these anamorphic raw shows, I can say that we had a discussion right when it started, yeah. even before we started compositing shots at all, to treat that as a case-by-case -case basis. Um, and there were cases that called for the full style because we blew it up by 250%, or we really wanted to focus on something and use that extra real estate for something. But the vendors, for the most part, decided that it was unwieldy to treat the whole show that way. And it was more of a, a case, yeah, it was a case-by-case case decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah we, it we've seen all permutations. I, I Winter's Tale, the VP <laughs> wanted to see the edges that he never actually composed for and just right. have them available. But we used we used a lot of that real estate in, in yeah. certain cases. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a there's a horse flying all over the screen. It's like yeah, we worked on it. So it we worked right on it too. I know. We yeah. needed we needed that, that canvas at times. Um, but but I would also just throw in there that whatever on this particular topic, whatever we're talking about today, 
six months from now, we're gonna have to have this conversation again because it's 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 yes. just yeah. increasingly. Uh, if if you're if it's not like if you're not worried about file size, for instance, or disk size, or whatever, like like I, I understand it is a strain, but it's also everyone. Uh, we don't we don't really have a choice. We've got to prepare for five k, six k, eight k, half float linear, full floating point. You know, exr. Like it's it's just everything's drifting in that direction. So. There's compelling arguments on both sides on a case-by-case -case level, but but we you know we we know we we have to go in that direction as as VFX vendors we have to go in that in the direction where we where the compelling argument is not oh our system can't handle it it has to be oh there's some other reason like we're you know we're moving the files to India to do prep work or we're you know there's some transfer reason or some color space reason or some some other thing you know. Towards a bold future, I think we're going to leave it there. Um, thank you very much, everyone. I'd like to thank our speakers, Zana and Chris. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Postworks Technicolor for having us for this whole series. Uh, this has been Turnover to Visual Effects. My name is Ben Baker. Thank you very much.